From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. More reasons to roll up your sleeve, the new COVID booster and the flu shot. I'll speak with an infectious disease expert at St. Mary's in Grand Junction about both. Is there any harm in a twofer? How should you time the new COVID vaccine? Then, school closures hit the small suburb of Wheat Ridge especially hard. And later, David Byrne on his new immersive show in Denver centered on science. Theater of the mind may get you to look inward. So you can infer from these experiences, what does this mean for my life? What does this mean for who I am? And she wasn't nominated for an Emmy. She wasn't even at the awards ceremony. Yet Denver jazz legend Diane Reeves got a big old nod. You wait for the bus, the weekend, and you wait for your morning coffee to finish brewing. But you don't have to wait to get live news from CPR. Just come to CPR.org or listen live on the Colorado Public Radio app on your phone. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. By now, some Coloradans have had as many as five shots to protect them against COVID-19, the fifth being the new bivalent booster, targeting more recent variants in addition to older ones. It's now widely available. Dr. Diane Janowitz specializes in infectious diseases at St. Mary's Medical Center in Grand Junction. She joins us from our studio on Main Street to answer questions about where we are in the pandemic. Doctor, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Remind us what this latest booster is supposed to do and how it's different from the original. Oh, sure. So the original uh, vaccines, as well as the booster, were monovalent. Um, And this means that they contain genetic information for one version of the spike protein, And this new bivalent vaccine that was just recently approved earlier this month contains more genetic information. So it contains information for that spike protein from two different strains. So not only the original strain that we've seen since the beginning of the pandemic a couple years ago, but also the most common variant or the Omicron BA5 variant version that we're seeing causing most of the infections uh, uh, now um, in all of our communities. Uh, Should people who have not gotten the primary series of COVID-19 vaccinations get this booster to start? No, not yet. So you're not eligible to receive this bivalent vaccine if you haven't yet completed your primary series of COVID vaccinations. So If you're in that group of people, what I would recommend is go ahead and start your vaccine series. And then when you're eligible and you've completed that, um, absolutely uh, go and get your bivalent vaccine because it's going to afford you more protection um, for what we're predicting will be the predominant strains in the upcoming months um, throughout the rest of the year. Now, if you have gotten the primary series, but no booster as of yet, you should probably jump to this booster, correct? Yes, absolutely. Do you trust this bivalent booster in in terms of the vetting that it went through? I do. So um, I just got mine yesterday, um, just as a testament to uh, 
uh, trusting it. But as an infectious disease doctor, having looked at um, the vetting that this vaccine went through, um, we've have data from people who have received a bivalent vaccine. Um, it is effective. Um, it's safe. And then the amount of side effects um, that we see with this bivalent vaccine um, is about the same or perhaps even a little bit lower than what we saw with that original primary series or that original monovalent vaccine. So it's safe and effective. And we see probably a little bit more protection, maybe about 20% more protection from this bivalent vaccine than we see from the original uh, vaccine early on. You have to be at least 12 to get the updated Pfizer booster, uh, 18 for Moderna. How long should a person wait from their last dose to get the bivalent booster? It's a bit of a choreography on the calendar, I think. (laughs) It is. Um, So the current recommendation is that if you've received your primary vaccine series and you're up to date, that you should wait two months since your last shot before getting this bivalent vaccine. Now, many of us have already received our booster and it may have been six months or longer ago. So uh, now is the time for for those people. But if you've recently been vaccinated, the recommendation currently is, is at least two months since your last dose. Um, and we, we don't have the data to know for sure if perhaps longer delays are going to be better. Um, it's not conclusive and it's not uniform. So right now, two months is that cutoff. And I would say if you're there, go ahead and, and go get it now. All right. Let me share my own experience, which is that I mm-hmm. got COVID. And remember, you can get COVID if you're vaccinated. The idea is that it will be much milder and you won't be hospitalized. That's not a failure of the vaccine. Uh, But I got COVID and my thought was to wait about three months, which is believed to be the protection that you get from the antibodies, uh, to then get my booster, which so happened to be about when this bivalent booster came out. Uh, Did I make a smart decision there, having relied to some extent on the shielding of having had COVID? You absolutely did. Um, so, and, and you're getting into, a, we can get into a little bit of the nuanced data. Um, right now, the recommendation is that if you've had COVID, you can go ahead and get that bivalent booster as soon as you are symptom-free ah. and out of that uh, isolation period. However, usually we recommend at least two months and perhaps even up to three months. There's some newer data that shows that there may be some benefit to waiting that three months. Um, after primary infection, whether you've been uh, vaccinated or not. And so probably not longer than three months um, at this point, but perhaps in the future we'll see some more data that shows four months is better. Uh, But between two and three months is the best time to go ahead and get that booster. I also know that there are people doing a different calculus, which is that they might be thinking about their holiday travel coming up. They might be thinking about the potential for some new surges, uh, for the fact Mm -hmm. that the flu is also circulating and flu shots are now widely available. We've talked a lot about timing so far. Should my anticipated travel or time with relatives or fears of a surge be baked in to when I get the booster? Well, it's tempting to perhaps delay getting that booster with some of those important events coming up. But I think there's a lot of factors to 
uh, consider um, when you're deciding about when to get that booster. So certainly if you have a really important event coming up, maybe you have a wedding or a, a big anniversary or a huge family reunion. So if you want to take that into consideration and, and, and timing of your booster vaccine, we know that neutralizing antibodies after receipt of the vaccine really start to peak about two weeks after that shot. So perhaps if you have a wedding coming up in two weeks, um, now is the time to get it or two weeks prior to that event. But delaying getting that vaccine does have a little bit of inherent risk because we're still seeing at least 400 deaths a day here in the U.S. And so the, the virus is still circulating and affecting a lot of people. So you're taking a little bit of a chance um, without um, getting that vaccine um, for, a, you know, I guess getting the, the virus and getting ill. So if it's convenient and, and you have the chance, go now um, versus if you have an important event and you'd prefer to tweak that timing. Any harm in getting the flu shot and the COVID booster at the same time on the same visit? No, there's no harm whatsoever. And it's currently recommended that you can go ahead and get both your flu vaccine as well as your COVID vaccine. Um, You can get them in the same arm if you'd prefer to have only one sore arm or go ahead and get them in different arms. <laughs> However, um, you're most comfortable. Um, there's there's no benefit um, or harm to whichever of those choices you make. We do have data. You know, last year we had nearly a half million people who received both the flu as well as the COVID vaccine at the same time. Um, it looks like they're both just as F- effective um, when you receive them at the same time. Um, and that the when they're co-administered, those side effects um, are just about the same as if you receive one and then the other later on. Um, so it's safe and effective. I recently got the monkeypox vaccine. It's just been injection palooza over here, I'll say. Uh, re- <laughs> researchers look to the southern hemisphere to predict what kind of flu season we'll have up north. Uh, they are predicting a more severe season and And naturally, with people out and about, we can expect viruses to spread faster. Uh, Just briefly, what are you seeing so far in terms of flu? Uh, Anything at uh, St. Mary's? No, not yet. So our flu season really hasn't begun. Uh, Last year, we had quite the mild flu season. But as you've already told us, we are expecting a a much um, worse flu season this year. Um, So we're lucky so far. Um, The flu season really officially begins in December, Um, but right now vaccine shipments were sent out last month, and so people should uh, be receiving their flu vaccines now to prevent that illness uh, later on in in the fall and winter months. Doctor, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Dr. Diane Janowitz is an infectious disease physician at St. Mary's Medical Center in Grand Junction. She joined us from our studio on Main Street. And we'll be right back with a community that stands to be hard hit by school closures. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. 
16 schools are on the chopping block in Jefferson County. Three are in Wheat Ridge, which makes the Denver suburb one of the hardest hit. Parents there say the decision unfairly burdens vulnerable families. They say the proposal to close schools only bolsters a system that concentrates wealth and whiteness. The district disagrees. Here's CPR education reporter Jenny Brandine. Selene Hernandez-Ruiz bought a house near New Classical Academy at Vivian, not just because of the small school's emphasis on classical books, logic, and rhetoric, but because of its focus on treating all people with kindness. And they talk about things like empathy and, you know, sticking up for, for people that sometimes don't have a voice. And so it feels very close to home, the fact that I am a minority, I am an immigrant, I have a disabled kid. Nearly 60% of students at Vivian are students of color. There are also students in the deaf and hard of hearing program, all learning together. Parent Molly Crampton. You can look at dismissal and just see everybody from different races, religions, backgrounds, and we all get along and we're all a community. That community is slated to disappear. Vivian is on the district's proposed closure list. The county's birth rate is declining and residents are aging. Three schools in the Wheat Ridge area, including Vivian, are on the list. Parents here see inequity at play and they blame a school choice system they say is hurting neighborhood schools. They allow families who are moving into neighborhoods and gentrifying them to decide that they don't want to send their kids to the neighborhood school. That leaves the small neighborhood schools with larger numbers of students living in poverty vulnerable to closure. The 16 schools on Jeffco's proposed closure list have an average of 54% of students eligible for free and reduced price lunch. That compares to the district average of 28%. But the district's Kimberly Elo says there are many reasons families choose a school outside their neighborhood. I do think it's somewhat of a misnomer to say that we have schools that only wealthy, affluent families are choosing out of. She says the data show many families choice into more diverse schools. She says there just simply aren't enough students for all the elementary schools anymore. But parents don't understand why Vivian has to move to nearby Stober Elementary, which is a much wealthier and whiter school. Five years ago, Stober was supposed to close and students were supposed to move to Vivian. But Stober parents push back. So I ask for you to step up and do the right thing for Stober in the community and save Stober. Thank you. But a 2018 bond invested more money into Stober, giving it more classrooms and capacity. So Vivian students now must move there. The district's Tara Pena says the consolidation effort will increase equity. She says the district can't adequately meet children's needs with support spread so thinly among many schools. I believe that when we are able to more equitably resource our buildings, that my hope is that any one of our schools in Jeffco, a family would be honored to send their children to. Which doesn't have a sidewalk. It doesn't have a protected bike. At a local park on a Friday afternoon, Vivian parent Debbie Gail Mitchell asks Wheat Ridge City Council member Val Nosler Beck about how children can walk safely to the proposed new school, Stober. Nosler Beck says she's worried about that too and the future of all of Wheat Ridge's schools. I am so concerned that what we are going to potentially be doing here is showing people other pathways to not send their kids to schools in our community. And next thing you know, 
It's Everett Middle School, and next thing you know, it's Wheat Ridge High School. She and council member Corey Stites are helping mount a campaign against the closure. They've distributed hundreds of lawn signs. But the district says enrollment is declining fastest in Wheat Ridge. It projects just 84 future elementary-age children from all of the city's new housing developments. So 300 apartments that were just built next to the hospital, mm-hmm. and there's another 250. Stites reels off a number of housing developments he doesn't see on the district's list, including the old Lutheran Hospital campus, 100 acres that's expected to have 2,100 units. That's right. We've got ice cream shops opening up. We've got restaurants opening up that are more kid-friendly. So cutting us out at the knees and taking our schools away, that's not just harmful to the school district, but that's harmful to the city of Wheat Ridge as well. Families will keep fighting for their schools and at the very least try to ensure that factors like race and poverty are considered in future school closures. The district, meanwhile, plans to continue to meet with school communities to find out what families want to see in their new schools. The school board will vote on the closures on November 10th. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with David Byrne. His new science-based show reveals that he's far more than a talking head. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Brandon Vargas was incredibly proud of his grandmother's green chile recipe. So he set out to recreate it for friends and family. Just one problem, she never wrote it down. I mean, it's soft, it's luxurious, and then the spice settles on the back of your tongue, and it's a slow buildup. Do not miss the Green Chile Recipe episode of CPR's new podcast, Quien Are We?, everywhere you listen, and in the Colorado Public Radio app. It's billed as a theatrical test kitchen, and off-center at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts has a new concoction, Theater of the Mind. CPR's Eden Lane visited the venue, a massive warehouse, ahead of opening night, and spoke with co-founder Charlie Miller. Charlie, I'm so glad that you had a a moment for me to steal from you (laughs) with all of this going on, because the first thing I want to say is congratulations on Off Center becoming its own sort of entity. How do you feel? Thank you. It's really exciting that Off Center is being recognized in this way by the larger DCPA organization. It has been an amazing 13-year journey to this point, and I'm so thrilled for what it means for the future of immersive programming at the Denver Center and in Colorado. What has changed for Off Center, aside from being its own standalone uh, producing organization? I think the main thing that has changed is by making Off Center its own standalone line of programming, the DCPA is really saying this is important and this is here to stay. And it allows us to plan longer term for what we can do to have a bigger pipeline of work, hopefully, um, and to be continuing to push the boundaries of the types of theatrical experiences we bring and create in Denver. I remember our first interview when you got your first grant to do, (laughs) uh, and you put a number on it, which was really frightening. You said 13 years ago. Yep. Um, (laughs) So I co-founded Off Center in 2009, 2010 with Emily Tarquin. And it started as a little experiment on the edges of the DCPA, where we were experimenting with what would attract a a more adventurous audience, how we could push the boundaries of what we consider to be theater, and think more broadly about what art and entertainment can be and the role that the audience can have inside of storytelling. 
And your latest effort, this brand new theater of the mind with David Byrne, is a perfect example of what you just described. How did this happen? Um, it's It still feels surreal that we're at this moment because theater of the mind has been so many years in the making. I started talking with David and the New York producers in 2018 about the possibility of partnering and premiering the show in Denver. And after a two-year COVID delay, here we are. It was a, a perfect collaboration, a perfect fit for us at the Denver Center with a, a strong audience interested in immersive work and the incredible talented team we have at the DCPA that's able to pull off the impossible and build out 15,000 square feet of space into incredible environments that the audience can move through. And David and Mala, who had this amazing story and amazing concept that they wanted to bring to life. And so we were able to join forces and pull something off, I think, that none of us could have done on our own. Right. I mean, the team, just the, the amount of people you have uh, building this, creating this world, these worlds, it's a wonderful integration of science and art and technology. Boy. Tell me what, what has been the biggest lesson that you've learned so far? Because you're so close to opening. We still have a lot to learn. One of the things that I've been interested in is how the process of creating this show and the way I like to work in general kind of mirrors the scientific process. You sort of have a, a thesis and a, or a hypothesis and you test it out and you do small iterative tests and you learn from that and you build on it and you correct and you keep going. And, and every step of the way through this process, even before the DCPA joined in as a partner um, and as a producer, David and Mala have been experimenting and learning. And ever since we've been working towards a final production in Denver, we have done script workshop after script workshop. We have tested out the technology. We've tested out design ideas. We have built enough that we could get a sense of it and put audiences through it and had test audiences to really understand how people interact with the show. And so, and we will continue to do that in the weeks ahead. We will have um, a couple hundred test audiences more that will come through that will allow us to continue to refine the experience, refine the script, refine the story. So we get it hopefully just right and, and the kind of fine-tune how the audience meets the story and together they create the experience. The reputation that Off Center has built for immersive, successful immersive <laughs> productions is nationwide. It's reaching, it's reaching audiences and theater makers and storytellers so far away from Denver and you're bringing them here. What do you think of when you think of what happens for this piece or for Off Center coming next? I grew up in Denver, and this community is very, very important to me. And it is so exciting to get to share a work like this with the community and engage them in conversation around these questions that the, the piece brings up. And also that Theater of the Mind is helping to shine a spotlight on Denver and on the amazing immersive arts scene that we have here. And I'm so excited to be able to be a part of that and to continue to amplify the message nationally that Denver is the place for immersive art 
I'm helping organize a gathering that we're calling the Denver Immersive Gathering with a group called Immersive Denver. And in early November, we'll be bringing immersive theater makers and producers and artists from across the country to Denver to see Theater of the Mind, to see Convergence Station, Meow Wolf Denver, and uh, hopefully a bunch of other immersive work that other local creatives will be putting up around that time. And to have a conversation about why Denver and to show off the amazing community that we have here. So I'm really excited about that. And I'm really excited about the role Off Center and Theater of the Mind can play in building up our immersive community. I'm excited that we'll be bringing Camp Christmas back to Heritage Lakewood, Belmar Park this year. Local artist Lonnie Hanson has created this amazing over-the-top holiday extravaganza. And uh, it's just always a pleasure to partner with Lonnie and his amazing team to bring Camp Christmas to uh, to Lakewood. So that's the next big thing after Theater of the Mind. And beyond that, we are still working on a number of things that we're not ready to announce yet. But uh, you can be certain that Off Center will be continuing to create and produce and present really exciting work that puts the audience at the center of the story and that continues to push the boundaries of, of what theater can be. I love that sort of branding phrase that you have puts the audience at the center of the story. But it, it, having attended some of your shows, I know it is more than a branding phrase. And I just want to say congratulations on this elevation of this work. <laughs> yeah, you and Emily, I talked to you I think we were in the Jones Theater 13 years ago. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. You were like among the first to, yeah. to get it. CPR's Eden Lane speaking with Off-Center co-founder Charlie Miller before the opening this week of Theater of the Mind. The mind-bending show draws on decades of scientific study. Eden also spoke with co-creator David Byrne of Talking Heads and director Andrew Scoville. What is this? How did you come up with this idea? What inspired you to turn science into an immersive theater experience? I read about some science experiments many years ago uh, and thought, that sounds so cool. Uh, the, the experience, I thought, I would love, love to do that. Maybe I can bring the lab to New York and put them in an art gallery so everybody can experience that. Well, that never happened. <laughs> but I didn't give up. In fact, I got even more enthusiastic and discovered other experiments that I thought, oh, that too, I would like to do that. I, and eventually we got to you know, a wish list and we started testing them out, seeing what worked and yeah. And then realized we need a story. We need a, a, a reason, a, a larger, um, so you can infer from these experiences, what does this mean for my life? What does this mean for who I am? So yeah, that's kind of where we are now. So how do you take that concept and those experiments and the story they came up with and manage it as a director of this? I, I, I should have to say uh, another world because there's a lot of world building happening here. There is a lot of world building. Um, David and Mala both had done a lot of work in terms of what experiments we would be working with. And so when, when I came in, the real question was, how do we move these from a science laboratory feel into more of an emotional human feel? 
And the work has been unlike anything I've ever worked on before in that uh, every time we feel like we have a handle on something, <laughs> a new door of complexity is opened. And that um, manifests in the technological system that has been designed. It manifests in the uh, nuance of moving 16 audience members through really sometimes disorienting environments, and also how you schedule and architect a process that will get 14 guides prepared for essentially the same role. And, and how? Did you do that? <laughs> uh, we we learn more about that process every day. It certainly is like a lot of uh, spreadsheets and a lot of time management and just trying to figure out ways for everyone to be um, working in the spaces as much as possible. So a lot of turn taking. I have an amazing group of directors who are working with me, Betty and Amanda, and we really are all functioning as directors on the project in that we all need to be working all the time with different groups to get everybody up to speed. David, what's your reaction? How do you feel about watching all of this get created and come together and be presented for people to experience? How does that, what does that feel like? Oh, it's kind of a pinch me, pinch me. Is this really happening kind of experience? <laughs> is there, is there any There's lots of work to do, but at the same time, you walk into some of the rooms and you go, oh my goodness, look at this. This is so amazing. This really is stepping into another world. And then you open a door and suddenly you're in another world. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to give anything away, but is there something that sticks out that we should, we should take as a, as a hint for what we can expect when we come Which to Which ones see? are we allowed to talk about? Um, um, I feel like one thing Oh, is, break the rules. Just tell me. All yeah, I know. <laughs> I feel like one thing is that uh, you will, like David said, you're not just stepping into one world. You're really stepping into many different worlds. And what's unique is that you're moving with a group, a small, intimate group of 16 people. So I think a lot of the things that are initially seen as disorienting are going to do a lot to codify that community. Each group that comes in is going to leave a little bit more united or uh, cl feel close to each other. Now, the Denver Center Theater Company and the DCPA have become well experienced at producing immersive theater. Great reputation. But what was it specifically about this place and this theater company that made you want to do it here? Uh, Charlie Miller approached me. He'd seen a kind of smaller test version that we did out in Menlo Park in Silicon Valley. And he reached out to me and said, I want to help you develop this, bring it here. And immediately we started looking at old warehouses and old car showroom, different kinds of places around town that could work for this. And we had an idea of a dream of how many spaces we wanted it to contain. Uh, Charlie had, has cultivated a, an immersive audience here in Denver. There's, there's people in Denver that just love this stuff. So we thought, where else? Yeah. Now, I, I can't help but ask about any connective tissue between some of your other theater works, starting with The Catherine Wheel and Joan of Arc, and then, of course, American Utopia, to this. Those are so divergent pieces, but they come from you. Can you connect those for me, or is there a connective tissue? Wow. Uh, well, Andrew and I both worked on Here Lies Love, which is a... Um, a musical, but it's an immersive musical where the audience is in a, in a disco. So you're, you've created this disco world and the audience is, is on the dance floor. They're not watching it. People can watch it, but half the audience is on the dance floor. 
And you, you kind of learn from that, uh, that it's, a, it's kind of an incredible experience for the audience. <laughs> yeah, how to enable people to participate without them feeling embarrassed. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, sometimes if you say, oh, it's an immersive experience, people will go, oh, no, 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 no. I don't like being picked out. I don't like having to do something. So we now, you learn how not to do things that audiences are concerned about. And some of your other pieces have been more traditional theater pre presentational style. There has to be something very exciting about watching people experience this in a, in a brand new format. Is there a, a tip or a hint that we should share with listeners before they come to see just so they get the most out of it? Follow the guide's instructions. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the um, science phenomena requires you to do really specific things in order for the effect to work. So hopefully we've set them up to be led uh, with, with care and with joy. Um, but this is not an experience where you're going to find the story by opening every drawer and opening the books on the bookshelf. This is everything that you need to know and everything that you need to do, will, you will be guided through. And after such a long wait, it's finally here. How do you feel? I thought that Denver, the Denver Center was really smart about when the pandemic started. A lot of productions uh, were saying, oh, we'll be back up in, you know, in a month. We'll <laughs> and you may remember those days. Denver Center said, no, it's going to be two years. <laughs> and then we know we'll be in the clear. And here we are, almost completely in the clear. <laughs> Well, congratulations on finally bringing it to life. I can't wait to share it with Colorado Public Radio listeners. Thank Great. you so much. Thank you. CPR arts and culture reporter Eden Lane speaking with Theater of the Mind co-creator David Byrne and director Andrew Scoville. The show runs through December 18th in Denver. Be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. In the mid-1800s, Colorado's growing population was hungry. Meat eaters typically ate animals that came up from Texas on hoof, somewhat worse for the wear. John Iliff had a million dollar idea. Buy exhausted cattle, then fatten them up on his ranch in Northeast Colorado. Mining towns, railroad workers, and the government all bought Iliff's beef and made him a very rich man. When John Iliff died, his wife Elizabeth took on the business, then sold it and became one of the wealthiest women in Colorado. Years later, she remarried and as the new wife of a Methodist bishop, she thought Colorado's growing population was still hungry, in their souls. She donated a healthy sum to fund a seminary, the Iliff School of Theology, named for her first husband, the one many folks still called the Cattle King of Colorado. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with the support of Dazzle Jazz, celebrating 25 years. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When I was back on the Western Slope last week, I spent a little time on the campus of Colorado Mesa University. And it got me thinking about the tight-knit community that you might not expect in Grand Junction, one I became familiar with in 2019. At the heart of this particular community is a modest restaurant, an order-at-the-counter, seat-yourself place in a strip mall. This is Akahi Grill, a Hawaiian restaurant specializing in poke, bowls of fresh tuna, fruit, and vegetables. It's across the street from Colorado Mesa University, and that's not a coincidence. 
CMU has for decades attracted native Pacific Islanders, today around 150 students. A special arrangement means they don't have to pay out-of-state tuition. And their annual luau, yes, luau in landlocked Colorado, is a real draw. This is from the 2015 event. Its absolute charm is that you'll hear yee-haws from the audience as the dancers strike a particularly Polynesian pose. Before I explain how the Hawaiian community got so strong in Grand Junction, before we meet the transplanted Hawaiian on city council, I want to introduce you to a soft-spoken woman here at the restaurant, a native of Maui, who was just a little nervous to do an interview. Easy question. You know the answer to this one. Just tell me your first and last name and spell it for me. My first name is Dion, D-I-O-N-N-E, and my last name is Puha, P-U-H-A. You're the owner? Of this location. Of this location? Yes. yes. So do I call it a chain? A uh, family business. It's actually my father started the business. My sister owns the one in Gypsum. My brother owns the one in Avon, Colorado. I own this one here in Grand Junction, and my other brother owns the food trucks. Like so many Native Hawaiians who come to Colorado, Puha's family was in search of economic opportunity. Job prospects are limited on the islands. Housing costs can be astronomical and wages don't keep up. Now you heard her say they have a restaurant in Gypsum? That's where the family landed. So my dad wanted something different for us. My uncle brought him up here to start a construction company. Then the Great Recession hit. Construction kind of faded away, you know, it kind of went down. So we started cooking, catering and everything. Like he started catering for my brothers, their football teams and things like that. And then we just kind of went from there. And he asked me one day if we wanted to open a restaurant. Tell me about the food you cook here. Well, the food we cook here is, I want to say it's like home. You know, we brought home with us. So it's like family recipes and like things we love. And we wanted to share it with everyone. Her customers today include two Hawaiian natives. Best dish on the menu here. I'm a fish guy. If I miss the ocean, I miss the ocean because of the fish. So I'm always a pokey guy. That's Grand Junction City Councilman Phil Pea, who came here 43 years ago to play college football and never left. I like the Maui chicken. And Bo Flores, a senior at Colorado Mesa. He's student body president. My hopes is to eventually run for city council, kind of like what (laughs) Uncle Phil did. (laughs) I like how you refer to him as Uncle Phil. Yeah, I think it's a little, for me, disrespectful to just call him Phil. I think that's the way that we were brought up, yeah. When you're brought up, yeah, because respect. You know, friends of the family are very close. They're uncle and auntie. You know, you don't call them by their first name. Pea, a.k.a. Uncle Phil, was something of a pioneer, an early Hawaiian student at CMU. Hundreds of others followed. Word spread, Hawaiian tells Hawaiian tells Hawaiian? Is that how this happens? Uh, coconut, coconut wireless. Coconut wireless, that's what we call <laughs> it. Coconut wireless. Yeah. I feel like you can say that, I can't. <laughs> no, don't I worry. Pea sees himself as a role model, someone Hawaiian kids can lean on when they get homesick. Someone who speaks their language, literally. It's definitely mook. <laughs> mook means local. Pigeon talk, yeah. Pigeon talk. That is Hawaiian pigeon, an English-based creole. Do you want us to do it real quick? Definitely. Now, Bombay. Bombay, you can chant them. You're like, you know what? We talk like that. <laughs> can? We can? You ready to go, bro? And it's very fast. I like to think of it as it's shortened sentences. Okay, so can I give you a sentence and then hear what that might be in pigeon? Okay. You can try, yeah. 
I walked to the Hawaiian restaurant, ordered poke, had a good meal, and went back to my dorm. Probably like go grind ikahi and then come back. Yeah. Cruise. Ken. Ken? <laughs> it's funny because when I first got here, people like, they don't understand what we're saying. And my friends would do it on purpose. They're still like, if we like talk smack or something. But <laughs> so then no one knows what we're saying. Besides the lack of an ocean and the distance from their families, what led to the most culture shock for Pea and Flores, and this would be true for anyone from a warmer climate, was the snow, experiencing it for the first time, though decades apart. The building over there is called Houston Hall. This is at Colorado Mesa University? Yes, and we were upstairs, second floor in Houston Hall, and it started to snow. And I started to stare out the window, and then finally I looked down and I seen one of my friends, Kevin, run out there. So we didn't have winter shoes, so what we did is you'd put socks, and then you'd have to put your finger between your big toe, and then it'll fit in your slippers. Wait, wait, you were wearing sandals? But you put socks on, so they're winter. They're like a winter. (laughs) So it was warm. It was warm. (laughs) Until today, I've got friends that still live here, and they always bring it up to me. Going, you know, Phil, I'll never forget watching you three guys just roll around in the snow and play out there for hours. I love the idea of flip-flops with tube socks as winter attire. They're like Hawaiian Uggs. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, it was kind of similar. I was in Pinion, which is the, a dorm, and it started to snow, and a bunch, I think there was like seven of us. Four of us was from, was from Kauai, and the other three was from Oahu, and we're just like, it's snowing. We're scre- I never touched snow. I never, my island doesn't have snow at all around <laughs> my island. So we, we ran outside. We took off all our clothes, and we were just rolling around, screaming, yelling, chee just, just going crazy. What is chi? Like, chee-hoo. It's like a little cheer it's, that we it's do. It's a cheer of the lines, dude. And um, there, it was funny because we were all in our underwear, just running around, rolling around. I actually got sick after that, but... Gee, I can't imagine <laughs> yeah, why. Yeah. <laughs> what most surprised me from our conversation is hearing the parallels these men draw between Colorado's western slope and Hawaii. The similarities they see. Opportunity drew them both here, but the culture, which Pea calls Polynesian cowboy, is what keeps them in Colorado. The culture's kind of Hawaiian. It's kind culture. They're personal. They'll talk to you. You know, you walk in the store, say hi. They'll say hi. They'll just walk by you, bump into you. I love this idea that the culture in Mesa County is Hawaiian-like. Well, when you think about it, Hawaiians, we're all about the land, the aina. And this Grand Junction, we're rural. We're ag. So what's agriculture? The land, right? I agree. When I, when I first came to Grand Junction, it was, I noticed it because we, we went to Denver first, the, the big city kind of, we always complained that we opened the door for someone and they wouldn't say thank you or they wouldn't open it for someone behind. And that's, to me, it's the simple things like that is, can make someone's day. So when we got here, I totally agree with Uncle Phil, the, the fact that it's just, hey, hi, small conversation. I've never even met this guy or, or, or with an elderly couple. We just talked and it's just, it's comforting. I'm from the big island of Hawaii. Right smack in the middle, there's this ranching community and people laugh because I always told them when I got here, I'd see more horses and cows in Hawaii. And they, <laughs> and they would joke and say, what, you guys wear hula skirts, you know? And then they come back and then they see what it's really like. As far as your eyes can see, it was the biggest ranch in the world owned by one person, which was Samuel Parker. Cattle trucks, big semis. As far as your eyes could see, it was just rolling hills of ranches. You've gone from one ranch land to another. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. This one's a little more <laughs> arid, but yeah. This one's a little more arid. <laughs> yeah. Just a little. Just a little. 
Phil Bea and Bo Flores are natives of Hawaii who came to Grand Junction to attend Colorado Mesa University. They stayed and made it their home. They joined us at Ikahi Grill, a Hawaiian restaurant that opened across from campus to serve the school's many Polynesian students. We spoke in 2019. Phil Pea still serves as a Grand Junction City Council member, and Bo Flores is a project manager at a public affairs firm in Junction. Return to the CMU campus tomorrow. It's where I recorded the latest episode of Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Tune in for my conversation in front of a live audience with nature writer and adventurer Craig Childs. His latest book, Tracing Time, is about the ancient rock art that surrounds us in the Southwest. Some of it documents astronomical phenomena. One global event in particular stands out, though. Yeah, a supernova in 1054 AD that lasted for years and was as bright as the moon, full moon. There are records of it. The Chinese kept very accurate records of the day and the placement. And and you see it around the southwest, too. You see in Chaco, it's it's a starburst with a crescent moon and a handprint. And they're on the ceiling. So you're looking up and seeing these above you, which to me is, is looking at the sky dates back to that that same period. And that must have been huge to see a a supernova. I mean, right now, I think it would freak us out. Oh, yeah. I think it would change the course of civilization if it happened today. And think about it happening happening in 1054, what that would mean to have, it it was blood red. So to have this bright red light in the sky all of a sudden. And it endured? Yeah, it lasted for years. So just imagine going out at night and everything's bathed red. No, 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 no. (laughs) I'm not sure how we do with it right now, to tell you the truth. A taste of my conversation with Craig Childs, author of Tracing Time, Seasons of Rock Art on the Colorado Plateau. The full interview tomorrow on Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. At the Emmys this week, Cheryl Lee Ralph won Outstanding Supporting Actress in the comedy series Abbott Elementary. When she got onto the stage for her acceptance speech, she took a deep breath and broke into song. I am an endangered species But I sing no victim song I am a woman, I am an artist, and I know. It was Ralph's first Emmy nomination and her first win, although she's had a long acting career. That song, Endangered Species, was originally performed and co-written by Denver's own Diane Reeves. The jazz legend shared her reaction to the Emmy's moment, telling All Things Considered she's known Cheryl Lee Ralph for some time. 
she always loved the song and she was always singing it. But I never would have thought that in this great moment that she would even start with a song and that it would be a song that I know that I wrote. <laughs> I just lost my breath. I, it was just an amazing moment. Reeves released Endangered Species in 1994 on her album Art and Survival. It was a kind of a crazy time because there were a lot of things going on. And for some reason, I thought maybe this would be my last record. I didn't know there were a lot of things going on in the industry. You know, I was trying to navigate the business and just all of the things that come along with it that can tear you down. Um, but, you know, I had sister friends that just kept me lifted. We just kept each other lifted to move through all of this. As Cheryl Lee Ralph's Emmy moment continues to go viral, the song is reaching new audiences. Diane Reeves has this message for young people, particularly young women, hearing it for the first time. I want them to take away that you are out here and you never know who is seeing you. You never know where your help is coming from. Sometimes things will happen for you. You don't know how they happen. It's because people see you and just keep being you. Just keep loving on yourself. That's the most important thing. And the other thing that I would say is to have grace for yourself because sometimes the frustration sets in because you do a thing and you don't, and it didn't garner maybe the acceptance that you thought that it should. But you just never know, maybe it wasn't that time, but it will be there. So have grace for yourself and for the people around you and keep moving forward. I am an endangered species, but I sing no victim songs. I am a woman. Jazz artist Diane Reeves of Denver reflecting on endangered species after actress Cheryl Lee Ralph gave the song New Life in her acceptance speech at the Emmy Awards this week. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You can follow this show at Colorado Matters on Twitter. I'm at CPR Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.